The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host. I have with me in the studio today Dr. Joseph Piper, president of the seminary. Dr. Piper, thank you for being with me. Thank you very much, Zach. I always enjoy doing faith and practice with you. So faith and practice, if you're a new listener, is our monthly or <laughs> mostly monthly <Supposedly. laughs> segment of Confessing Our Hope, where Dr. Piva comes in and we answer questions sent in by our listeners, and we're talking about you. And so if you ever have a question about a theological issue, a practical concern, or, or whatever that, that you would like to ask, please send it in. Um, this is one of our favorite things to do on the podcast. And Dr. Piper, we have a, a good rundown of questions that we can dive into, but before we do, do we have any announcements here at the seminary that you'd like to share with our listening audience? Well, just the upcoming courses, Zach, in August, or July and August, I guess, if you want to run down those. Yeah, so we have a biblical counseling course uh, taking place in late July, I think the third full week in July with Dr. Joel Enoch Wood of the RPCNA. He'll be taking us through the book of Job as both a test case and a uh, textbook for biblical counseling and uh, walking with people through suffering and using Job uh, toward that end. And then in August, we have two intensive courses. One is by, with Dr. Nick Wilborn, uh, one of our adjunct faculty here and pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Dr. Wilborn will be teaching uh, Presbyterian theology in the American 19th century. And if you look at the reading list for that class and you like theology at all, um, you, you would be very much deeply interested in the course. We'll be reading selections from W.G.T. Shedd, James Henley Thornwell, John Lafayette Giraudot, um, J.B. Adger, and Charles Hodge, R.L. Dabney, and, uh, and Stuart Robin, Robinson, and, and others as we explore developments in Presbyterian theology in the 19th century involved in that in that class would also be a walking tour of uh, historical sites in Columbia, South Carolina, and Charleston, South Carolina. So you have a bit of a local history portion of the class as well. And it, it's a very special time and a lot of fun. And then Dr. McGraw will be teaching an intensive in August on Reformed Scholasticism. That's a research methodology course as well as a survey course of post-Reformation Reformed Orthodoxy, both the methodology of scholastic theology, but then how Reformed content develops within that methodology that was uh, so dominant in the years after the Magisterial Reformation. Another class that I've taken that I very much enjoyed and benefited from and recommend to our listeners. I think it's also appropriate to mention that we will be at at least the OPCGA and the PCAGA this year. In fact, we have a, a group of men that are at the OPCGA this week and uh, should have a table set up there, though I, they haven't sent me the picture yet. And they'll be doing uh, breakfast together on Saturday morning. So please uh, look for Jim Stevenson and Dr. Curto and Mark Bube and uh, Chris Campbell and uh, Phil Proctor there to, to hook up with them and, and say hello and, and give your regards or whatever. And then the PCA General Assembly, Dr. Piper, Dr. Shaw, and I will be there and uh, quite active. Dr. Shaw and Dr. Piper in official capacities serving the denomination. And then I'll be just the beneficent interlocutor that I am running around and 
uh, saying hi to people. And I'll have Miguel Dazavedo with me selling books at our booth this year. We'll have a selection of books with us. But we have a lunch on the Thursday of General Assembly. Information about that's available at gpts.edu slash PCAGA lunch. So Dr. Piper, would you please pray for us? I will, Zach. Almighty God, we bless your name, the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. Your name is glorious forever. We long to see the whole earth filled with your glory. It is unto that end, Lord, that we labor as individuals, as Christians, as this institution. For you alone are God, there is none other, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, the ruler, sustainer, and governor of all. We thank you for Christ our Savior, for his perfect work, and for the Spirit who indwells us as our tutor. So we ask now that uh, the Spirit, Christ by his Spirit, will give us wisdom as we would consider uh, answering these questions and that the answers will be beneficial to your church, to our hearers, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Our first question comes from Caleb Shea of Bloomington, uh, Minnesota. And he asks, what do you think about John Murray's doctrine of definitive sanctification, and why is this such a hotly contested issue? At face value, it seems to coincide nicely with Westminster Confession of Faith 13, paragraph 1, where the divines assert that in sanctification, the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, end quote. Thank you, Caleb. Uh, I think that what uh, Professor Murray did was simply uh, put a name to a doctrine that's been very much a part of uh, reformed uh, doctrine and practice of sanctification. You rightly refer to the Westminster Confession of Faith, where in chapter 13, paragraph 1, it says, The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened. Uh, two of the texts that are important here, Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And 6.16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting uh, in uh, righteousness? Actually, uh, verse 14 uh, of Romans 6, for sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. So the concept that's here in Paul and captured so clearly in the confession of faith, Caleb, uh, is the idea that when we are born again, uh, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we'll back up, where our nature is changed, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and the seed of righteousness is in us, so that we are new people uh, in Christ Jesus. We don't have two natures that war against each other. We, uh, we have a, a new nature uh, as born-again men and women, and in that nature there is a... Uh, propensity towards a desire for God and for obedience and a hatred of sin. And that sin no longer has a right uh, over us. And the rest of our sanctification will grow out of this union with Christ through the Spirit. Uh, as the confession goes on to say, 
that God in his wisdom has left within us uh, a remnant of corruption. Uh, paragraph 2, uh, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And so there's a remnant of sin, uh, but we're not defined by that. We are defined by being new people in Christ Jesus, dead to sin. So it, it shall not master us. Now, God in His providence will also leave uh, certain people who have been in life-dominating sins a period of time um, as they struggle with that. So you'll find one drunk or drug addict immediately released, another one having to go through a process, the same with uh, a person in pornography or in homosexuality, uh, thinking of these more life-dominating type activities. But the thing is, they don't have to go back to that. They have been freed from it. And what they have to do as they put on Christ is develop the new patterns of behavior. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 4, you put these things off by replacing them with godly patterns. And then paragraph 3 of the confession says that, in which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, one of the practical outworkings of this, uh, Caleb, is the whole discussion today with same-sex attraction, uh, where I identify myself as one recent PCA pastor has done as a homosexual Christian who is celibate. Well, he's taken uh, a description that the Bible says is a perversion of sin and tacked that to being a Christian and then said it's okay because I'm celibate. But be no different than saying I am an adulterer Christian or a fornicator Christian or a robbing Christian or a murderer Christian. We have these remnants within us. We all have lust yet within us and we must, each one of us, deal with his particular um, set of lust. But we do so with confidence because we know that we have died to sin through regeneration. Christ has applied to us the cross of Calvary, and the Spirit has applied to us the power of the resurrection. And so we don't have to sin. And it's important that we tell ourselves that when we are uh, faced with temptation. I encourage those of you who are not familiar with this to read Professor Murray, both in his collected writings and in his book on Christian conduct, um, principles of conduct, because I think he really does uh, uh, develop the doctrine in a useful manner. Our next question is about the pros and cons of a rotating session. We didn't talk about this last time, right? No. All right, good. I, I was wondering, this, this question has been sitting on the list for a little while. It comes from Anonymous. In uh, Anonymous asks, what constitutes a healthy rotation and unhealthy rotation? Let's first begin by trying to define some terms. Uh, a rotating session is actually the concept that is fairly ancient in the uh, Dutch Reformed churches. In American Presbyterianism, it was used mostly by liberals to get conservatives off the session. So in your classical rotating session, an elder is elected for a term, it could be three or four years, after which he then rotates off the session for one minimum of one year. Then he must be renominated 
and re-elected to come back on the session. Now, there was a bit of controversy in the PCA that was never in the intention of those who framed the Book of Order, but it got put in there as something of uh, another way to do it. But unfortunately, it's become uh, the much more normal way of doing it. Of course, that argues against the whole idea of the parity of the eldership, that the ruling elder uh, is a co-ruler of equal authority with any other ministers that might be on the session of the church. And just as the minister is elected um, for life or as long as he believes and the session believes he's called by God to stay there, so is the ruling elder. Uh, and that was the old Presbyterian way. And so you'll find men that were ruling elders for decades in churches and very uh, profitable spiritual men. So the rotating session then was used in liberal churches to get conservatives off the session and then not put back on. So they eventually changed the session and then they can change the life of the church. And it puts pressure on a congregation to nominate men that otherwise wouldn't have been nominated because they're constantly in need of, of new elders yes, if they're rotating I, uh, men Thank off. you for that, and, and you'll see that. And if you talk to the people, more spiritually-minded people in the Dutch Reformed churches, uh, that is one of their complaints. Uh, because, as I say, this goes back, I think it goes back to Dort. Uh, but what you get then is you're having to put up names uh, each year for these offices of elder and deacon, and you don't always have qualified men, and so you're putting unqualified men uh, into uh, church office. Uh, so uh, let me answer the other part of your question, what constitutes a healthy rotation, and then I want to get back and talk some about the advantages of um, a non-rotating session. I think if a church church needs to recognize that a, a really good active ruling elder uh, would need a rest. So there's a couple things that can be done. One is that a man could rotate into a year sabbatical and automatically come back on at the end of that period, much in the same way if a pastor takes a sabbatical. Um, he then comes back uh, into his full-time work at the end of uh, the sabbatical. Or he could be offered the sabbatical every so many years, and it'd be up to him whether or not to take it. Or he could request uh, a sabbatical. And so that would not really be a, a rotating uh, session. It's the only way I know of to you know meet the things of, of uh, yes, elders do get worn out and such as that. Um, the... The advantage in the minds of those that use it is that if you've got an unqualified elder, then you can get him off the session, which is contrary to how we're supposed to deal with things biblically. We're supposed to deal with one another uh, in love, but if a man uh, is not living up to his qualifications or his functions, is to sit down and talk about it. Be direct. Right, which is the Bible's way. Uh, and this is the way to get rid of a man that, you, that either... So, yeah, the liberals use it, but conservatives use it, too, to get rid of a man that's either not with the game plan or isn't really qualified to be an elder. And rather than do the spiritually profitable thing, to sit down and say, you know, I think that 
you, you know, you're not qualified or until you deal with this particular issue. And that's really the only advantage that there is because there's plenty of ways to give uh, a ruling elder rest who has been active. But the advantages of the, of the regular session is a pastoral care. Now, again, a lot of sessions are not committed to pastoral care. But if they are, and they're assigned uh, under-shepherd people for whom they're responsible in the congregation, you're breaking that up every three or four years. There's no ongoing pastoral relationship, whereas the elder really knows his flock, is involved in their lives, um, is very important and vital in the life of the church. So I've always been vehemently opposed to uh, rotating uh, session uh, and just wish our churches uh, would would get rid of it. For more on this, uh, Professor Murray actually wrote um, a short tract or essay article uh, contra rotating sessions and the practice of a rotating session. I think that's in volume. Is it volume two? I'm not sure which volume of his collected works that article is uh, is found, but it is. Uh, included as an appendix in Tim Whitmer's book, The Shepherd Leader. Ah. And that's why I thought maybe we already talked about this last time, because we did mention Dr. Whitmer's class that he'll be teaching with us next summer on The Shepherd Leader, going through that material. But um, Dr. Whitmer argues with John Murray against a rotating session, except in really extraordinary circumstances. And he's a big proponent of the sabbatical idea for when a man is, is just needs a break for a couple of years. So... Thank you for the question, Anonymous, and if there are any follow-ups on that, please send them in. We love the practical ecclesiological questions here at Faith and Practice. Our next one comes from Joshua Davis of somewhere here in the United States of America, (laughs) and he asks, is it possible to hold to historical premillennialism and have a semi-Kyperian outlook as well, or is this a total contradiction before we we just answer the question define terms define historical yeah. premillennialism but also define right. transformationalism or semi-kyperian outlook um, the uh, premillennialism the, the there's four forms of back up by step i have had no coffee today so uh, the, the term millennialism comes uh, from uh, revelation 20 the thousand year reign how is that being interpreted? The uh, dispensational premills have a very uh, uh, radical interpretation that ties into the rest of their scheme, and that it'll be a uh, it'll be a rapture, and then Christ will reign on earth literally a thousand years after the uh, seven years of tribulation that take place. Historic premillennialism is something that has been accepted in covenantal churches, and it's simply uh, the approach that, yes, um, Christ is king now, he is reigning, but he's going to have a thousand-year reign on the earth, and then will be the end of, uh, of history. Um, the really unique part of that is a double judgment, double resurrection so that there is an early resurrection and then a second resurrection. So those Reformed people who would hold to that position, some, like the Bible Presbyterian Church, have actually amended uh, their uh, standards to allow for this double resurrection. Other denominations simply have allowed it as a historically accepted position. Amillennialism is simply saying the thousand years is um, the church age, 
and it's not to be understood as a literal time frame, and that Christ's reign is from heaven. And most modern post-millennialists will agree that the uh, thousand years is, in fact, uh, not a literal thousand years, but the reign of Christ. But post-mill then would believe that during the reign of Christ, there's going to be uh, a growing time of gospel success and prosperity. Not necessarily straightforward, uh, but uh, clear a golden age uh, where Christ's kingship is recognized at the ends of the earth. Now, one would think that the, uh, right, so, so the Kuyperian outlook carried to uh, what, say, the neo-Calvinist uh, would say is that there is going to be a great transformation of culture uh, during the reign of Christ, and they base this on some of Kuyper's uh, concepts. Uh, Kuyper's great contribution was sphere sovereignty, and that is that we are to um, keep different spheres, particularly take the larger spheres of family, church, and state, and they're governed by Christ, but they don't govern one another. And so the church uh, has the spiritual work of the gathering perfect of the saints, equipping them then to be good husbands, wives, children, magistrates, businessmen, or whatever. Um, the um, and when most people think of Kuyperianism, that's what they think. But I think by your question, you're talking about the neo-Calvinistic transformative idea that we, uh, Christ is redeeming the culture. And um, I don't think Christ is redeeming culture. Christ is redeeming people through which He will change. The culture, but redemption applies to sin and sinful patterns in individuals um, and in families. So, could a person hold to the pre historic pre-mill, which is accepted covenantally, and have a semi-Kuyperian outlook? And that is, I'm assuming that there will be uh, some uh, gospel transformation uh, in. Um, in the culture because of the influence of Christians. I think it's a stretch, uh, but uh, praise God for our inconsistencies. The person that would hold to that really just needs to examine um, their approach to, uh, to the millennium because a classic premillennialist thinks that everything is getting worse and worse. And so in that way, uh, it's not very compatible. But if you simply believe that there's going to be this thousand-year reign, um, but up to that time, there's going to still be some transformation of, of structures because of the gospel. I, I think that's possible. He might have in mind the fact that it seems the most politically active Protestants in this country and even culturally active Protestants in this country <laughs> hold to a premillennial outlook. I mean, all the movies... Yeah. The, the the petitioning of their uh, Liberty University. Yeah, I mean Liberty University is this huge school, and, and one of its you know landmark or you know foundational kind of um, theological distinctives would be a, a premillennial outlook. And uh, that's a good question. I, if that's what you're getting at, Joshua, it might it might be a matter of scale. I mean, there's just more. Yeah, it's a matter. So, it is a contradictory, but we thank God that. Uh, these Christians are laboring in other spheres as well. and They're not just giving up on 
the Polishing the brass on a sinking ship is what we used to say. Yeah, <laughs> polishing the brass on a sinking ship. Well, there you have it. Thank you for the question, Joshua. If you have any follow-ups, please send them our way. Our next question comes from good friend Isaac Overton of Melbourne, Australia. And he asks, is it possible for a regenerated Christian to deny the doctrine of the Trinity? And he, he doesn't know this, but this is a timely question. We have a, a case coming before the, the Standing Judicial uh, Commission of the, the PCA this year about a, a man who has uh, appealed the decision of a local church in Ohio to bar him from the table for denying the Trinity. And he uh, he's appealed that decision to the Presbytery. The Presbytery... I think um, Presbytery told the church to put him back on the roll and transfer him to another PCA church. Yeah, and, and then uh, and the church refused to do that, and this got taken up to SJC. I think on some technical point, but you know the heart of the matter remains. This has to do with a man who claims to be a Christian, but ex- expressly and explicitly denies the doctrine of the Trinity. He's not even just confused on it. He just denies it. No, he's actually it. written on it. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you, uh, Zach. And Isaac, uh, let's just change your terms. Can a person be a born-again Christian and deny the doctrine of the Trinity? Now, that's easy to answer. No. You can have no uh, Christ to save you if you don't understand that he is the God-man. His work would be completely ineffective. And if there's no father to whom to pay the ransom, no spirit to uphold him and to work with the other two in raising him and to apply that work. Now, is it possible that a brand new Christian would not understand the Trinity until they're taught? Yes. So I I would make it a measure of, is this person right now converted? Because God will say sometimes on very small amount of information but once a person is uh, truly uh, converted Christian uh, they're going to have to believe in the Trinity as they understand how God saved them. So how about this question Dr. Piper as a a little practical follow-up should we extend all the benefits and privileges of church membership to somebody who doesn't yet understand the doctrine of the Trinity? They have a credible profession of faith otherwise but just can't articulate that God is three persons in one God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, I guess you're asking that. We have actually, as you know, an overture that we didn't have when we discussed overtures uh, from our good friend in Tennessee Valley, Nick Wilborn. Barely passed his presbytery to add to the uh, vows of public profession of covenanting a belief in the Trinity. The Orthodox Presbyterians added that to their vows, I don't know, five or six, seven years ago. I think it is a very good addition because uh, I do think it is essential to, to knowing who the true God is. So I'm very in favor that a person would have to be able to say, I believe that God is the one God who is in three persons, three persons are one God. Now, I don't have to understand that. They need to be able to affirm that. Please send us more questions about the Trinity. We love uh, handling those. Our next question comes from Chad Warner of Simpsonville, South Carolina. He asks, does a person need to ask for forgiveness before we can forgive him or her? Or can we forgive someone who hasn't repented to us? What do Mark 11.25, Luke 23.34, Acts 7.60 have to say about this? And I was just reading about this this morning in a theological text. 
So Mark 11:25. whenever you stand, by the way, Chad, as always, thank you for your question. Whenever you stand, pray and forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who's in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Luke 23, 34. It's a bit different. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And then Acts 7.60 was Stephen praying the same thing. <clears throat> Let's frame it this way, uh, Chad. Does God forgive anybody that does not ask forgiveness? No. So as your Father has forgiven you, so you forgive. So uh, forgiveness uh, can only be granted if someone has asked for forgiveness. Now what Christ is doing and what Stephen did are praying to God. And I think we see from 1 John 5 that we can pray to God to grant forgiveness, which means to grant salvation uh, to those who are enemies of the church and have persecuted us as enemies of the church. Uh, we're not forgiving them, but we're asking God to do a work in their life that would cause them. Otherwise, I mean, can when Christ prayed these people be forgiven, can they be forgiven apart from re repentance and conversion? No, they can't. The same in Stephen's case. So we obviously pray for the conversion of our enemies. We pray that God will bless our enemies, which would begin with their conversion. Now, oftentimes we confuse vindictiveness and not forgiveness and they're completely different so let's say that A sins against B and B is tempted to be vengeful and vindictive toward A uh, but by God's grace he isn't and he continues to treat A uh, with Christian charity that's not forgiveness. And that's what some people think forgiveness is. Forgiveness means reconciliation. That A has sinned against B, has asked B to forgive him. B forgives A, and the breach is gone, and they're no longer uh, at odds. They're not, they're reconciled, they're not irreconcilable. I think that's a very important distinction to, uh, to keep in mind. Now, this, it doesn't mean necessarily that when forgiveness is granted that trust is completely rebuilt. There's an ongoing discussion. Uh, if A committed adultery against B and A asked B to forgive him and B did forgive him, is B then required to remain married to A? And I think it's preferable that B would remain married to A, but I don't think... Forgiveness requires that because there's also been a covenant of trust that's been broken in that marriage uh, relationship. So, no, we don't grant forgiveness unless it is asked for and the person has repented of that. And on a practical level, we want to teach our children not to say, I'm sorry, but to say, um, I wronged you, forgive me. And it sets a whole different tone for, uh, for the relationship. And Zach's looking up his reading as I'm talking, so let him jump in. 
This morning I was reading for the uh, 19th century American Presbyterian class, Dabney's short book or collection of lectures on Christ, our penal substitute. And in uh, the lecture uh, where he argues, and this is chapter five in the book, he argues that um, the substitutionary atonement, the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ is not an expression of God's revenge, but rather an expression of God's perfect retributive uh, justice. And one of the objections against that he gets into here deals directly with the question from Chad. Dabney writes, again, it is objected that this God enjoins on us a forgiveness of injuries without retribution as at once the loveliest, the most godlike Christian grace. Therefore, this dogma, talking about penal substitutionary atonement, must be false, which represents God is always unforgiving until his vengeance is satisfied. They brandish before us the Lord's prayer. They proclaim the words of Paul, requiring us to forgive our enemies, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. Out of their own mouths, we easily refute them, for Paul teaches in this their Texas Palmarius that God does not forgive his enemies after the fashion they claim, but for Christ's sake." which is to say that God's forgiveness of his enemies is grounded in Christ's satisfaction for their guilt, and it implies that those enemies of God who reject Christ's satisfaction are not forgiven by God. The forgiveness required of us is to be after the pattern of God's forgiveness as he, etc. Now, how does God forgive his enemies? Upon condition of repentance and faith, not otherwise. And Dabney uh, con continues and, and elaborates on that and addresses a couple sub objections and, and counter uh, arguments. Good. This is very helpful material. So. One more thing, Chad, and that is uh, we also need to remember that love covers a multitude of sins. Not everything needs to be confessed. Um, we make excuses for the other person. We know they've had a bad day or they're tired or whatever, and we can just, uh, in love, forget about it. So forgiveness is necessary when there's been a breach. Uh, in the in the relationship, and the sin lying there is going to hinder the relationship. Overlooking things in love is very difficult. Mustn't be too lax on that, but we mustn't be too severe over minor infractions as well. I appreciate that word of wisdom. Dr. Piper overlooks many things in love, particularly with my handling of the podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> I always appreciate that. Our next question comes from David Henry of somewhere here in the United States, I assume. I would like to ask a theological question. Is there such a doctrine as the doctrine of cessation? And if there is, what are the scripture references that support it? Thanks in advance. Very good, David. Thank you. Yes, there is the, a doctrine of cessation. And that doctrine, uh, in summary form, is that the extraordinary gifts, such as those that we find in 1 Corinthians 12, um, the first part of 1 Corinthians 12, uh, were connected to the apostles and would have died out after the end of the apostolic age. So in particular, healing, uh, speaking in tongues, um, prophesying that is more than preaching the word of God, but actually telling someone a message from God that's been given to you and interpretation of these things. Now, the doctrine is based on the very close relationship of those gifts um, that we actually may refer to as apostolic gifts. So Paul, in, 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 12, as he's having to defend his apostleship, says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you 
with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So Paul is saying, you know I'm an apostle because I did these gifts by which the apostolic office is uh, confirmed. Now we uh, see in Hebrews the link of the gifts to the office in chapter 2. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. You see here why they're called apostolic gifts and why Paul would appeal then to them to affirm his apostleship. Now, there's another step here. Paul's writing to a church that had these gifts, and we see that clearly from 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Um, so if they had the gifts, how are the gifts a sign of being an apostle? Well, the answer to that question is found in Romans chapter 1. And again, Dabney was, is very useful here in understanding this particular thing that Paul says when he's writing the Romans wanting to explain why he's not been there trying to prepare a way for uh, his visit um, he uh, says to them in verse 11 I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established now why is it necessary that he see them to impart those gifts. Well, the clear inference there is that they were apostolic gifts practiced by the apostles and then conferred by the apostles, not all of them on any one person necessarily, but on those in the church for the establishment and well-ordering of the church. We have a church that lives in an age when there was no New Testament canon. The letters were written around. They slowly circulated There'd be many questions to answer in terms of theology and practice in the life of the church. And so these gifts did two things. They confirmed the apostle in his authority, and they then were used by the Spirit to build the church up in the absence of the completed uh, scriptures. So uh, when Paul says, I've done these signs among you. So with the, the death of the apostles, there was nobody to bestow the gifts. But this is also why, for a period of time in church history, they would have continued uh, to some degree. The people that received the gifts received them for the church. They didn't die when the apostle died. And the churches still needed those things in that transition period before uh, canon was uh, completed. One other part about gifts is the idea that tongue speaking is necessary for uh, having the Holy Spirit uh, but Paul's quite clear in Romans 9, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. Thank you for the question, David. If you have any follow-ups on any particular points with Dr. Pipe's answer, 
can send them in to us. And uh, if anybody here um, wants the contact form, it's at gpts.edu slash gpts-podcast. You can also send in your questions by email to info at gpts.edu, or you can contact us through our various social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and the like. Our next question comes from John Blevins. He's a graduate of the seminary, associate pastor at Covenant PCA in Oak Ridge, uh, serving alongside of and with Dr. Wilborn. And he asks, how would you define a well-read Christian ruling elder and teaching elder? Well, hello, John. Um, Obviously, there's a difference. We'll start with the ruling elder. Uh, The ruling elder needs to be a man well-versed in Scripture so that he um, uh, is able to uh, teach and admonish, at least on a private level. Um, And that would entail then having a very good knowledge of the confession and the catechisms. Uh, I think that's foundational. Then he needs a good... uh, Commentary, and I think the best place to start would be with the six volumes of Matthew Henry that he would be using in studying the scriptures. Uh, always good to have uh, Calvin's commentaries, but that's a bit more extensive. But uh, he then should have uh, some of the good commentaries on the uh, confession of faith. And I would want to see rule an elder. Uh, reading the Institutes, Calvin's Institutes. They're, they're not difficult to read. And I had a really older father of a friend of mine when I was in high school, and he was up every morning at five doing his devotions, and part of that was reading through uh, the Institutes. Uh, now, some men will respond, I'm not a reader, and that's understandable. Of course, you've got to be in the Word and the Confession. Um, have these other resources, but what I encourage men that are not readers by habit or nature is, all right, this year I'm going to read one book. Ask your pastor for a good book uh, in uh, theology or Christian living or a biography, and there's excellent biographies available, and read that one book. Next year it's two books, and uh, before long you'll develop both the taste for and facility uh, in reading. There's a number of bibliographies that are available as well for for ruling elders, but I think they really should read in pastoral theology uh, books like Murphy or uh, Bridges the Christian Ministry uh, and in, in theology. Now the minister needs to be reading much more widely. In addition to everything I've said, he should have a regular reading program where he is... Uh, rotating through um, uh, systematics, uh, church history, uh, reading commentaries in his preparation, keeping his languages up, uh, but have books that he's reading. And then I think it's good for both men to also have some reading patterns in the general culture. It might just be uh, classics of uh, English literature um, or for entertainment, uh, good moral, there's a lot of mysteries now that you can also learn history from them. There's a lot of them that take place in medieval and Reformation period England, uh, and you learn a lot of history reading those things as well. But particularly, you know, read the classics uh, of English literature, uh, at least 
be working your way uh, along there as well. Is it important at all for a pastor or a ruling elder to read uh, top sellers in uh, different categories or segments like Christian books? So books that would be outside of really Reformed tradition, probably not very edifying, but um, are books that many Christians are reading. I don't see much reason for a ruling elder to do that, but I, I do think there's going to be pastors who are going to have to read The Shack and The Prayer of Jabez. And, and Jesus Calling. And, uh, and these books, so yeah. yes, so they can uh, can answer them. And then if what a ruling elder's got a penchant for helping people with those things, then yes. Yeah, and I guess I would include other secular self-help books that are popular and even business books that get shopped around and all quite the book, a bit. people that went to heaven and came back. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, th- those books are wildly popular. And of course. You're going to have people in your churches who there's not only God, have read them, but like them. There's a vacuum in man that only God can fill. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, all right, well, thank you so much, John. Did, did we talk much about what the well-read Christian? Uh, so not the officer, oh, but just the lay, the lay person. No, I didn't talk about the well-read yeah. Christian. Well, well-read Christian needs, needs to start. I mean, I think every uh, well-read Christian should read those basic things in addition to the Bible, the Confession of Faith, um, Calvin's Institutes, have, have Matthew Henry in the home uh, to use. And then th- th- the best thing to do, I mean, there's so many good books. The important thing is that you are reading good books, uh, reading the classics as well of of. Uh, theological literature and piety, as well as English classics. But the best thing you do is to go to your pastor and uh, ask for uh, uh, for suggestions, uh, because there's so many, and then I could easily miss one of the most important. Thank you for the question, John. I hope that's helpful to you in your own pastoral care. Our next question comes from Melwin Isaac who is originally from Kerala in India, was a student here for a few years, graduated this spring, um, and will, Lord willing, be entering in on a year-long internship in Savannah, Georgia at the Independent Presbyterian Church under Dr. Terry Johnson, as long as the paperwork comes through from, uh, the, from the U.S. government. But he asks, I was going through Mark, and suddenly I stumbled on the passage in Mark six thirteen. Here we read the apostles anointed with oil, many who were sick. And I also read in the book of James that if anyone is sick, he should call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. My question is this, why is it that the church today does not anoint the sick with oil when they pray for the sick? Is it because Western rationalism has crept into the church and it finds anointing with oil trivial when it is commanded in the scripture? I do agree that power is in the prayer and not in the oil, but why skip anointing with oil? Thank you, Melwin. Um, I think increasingly Reformed uh, pastors are coming back and dealing with this text uh, much more honestly. Um, The anointing with oil is the sign that healing takes place through the Holy Spirit. Anointing with oil is almost always a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles did it, when they first sent out, they were demonstrating that this power is not in us, this is the power in the Holy Spirit. Now we have in James 5 is something that's very different. We don't have apostles who have these extraordinary gifts. We are specifically told to call for the elders. And the elders then will anoint with oil and pray and but 
you'll notice connected with that is the confession of sin. So I think that we've got to read a bit between the lines here uh, as well, and there's a good bit of pastoral uh, truth here then. Let's, let's read this. If any, uh, James 5, 14, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church that will pray over him. Anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. <clears throat> Part of the process, as I understand it, and this is what is not often being done, even when they're trying to follow the command, is that the process itself is now we want you to examine your life. Is there, in fact, um, is this a chastening for a particular sin or sin pattern in your life? And um, if it is, and you confess that, and uh, we pray for you by anointing with oil, God's going to forgive your sin and heal you because that particular sickness has come uh, as a chastening for sin. The general pattern is that, well, I've examined myself, and no, I don't see that this is, nor do we as elders. And so we don't have the sure promise that the person will be healed, but we do know that God blesses. Um, this means he's given to us. And so it's, it's a confession that no healing takes place apart from the Spirit. Now, we do this before surgery as well. So God may heal directly and God may heal through surgery if there's in our medication if there is any healing it is because God has healed so that's the other thing that's coming out of this that we anoint with oil claiming the fact then that only God can heal you're going through this procedure uh, we're begging God to heal you and uh, if he does be sure that we give him the uh, the honor of uh, for how we sought him and, and what he's done. Of course, he should always get the honor anyway. But uh, we so often forget when there's somebody that's been healed that we should be thanking God, even if it was going through surgery. So I think we should practice it. Uh, the church where uh, my wife and I attend where, and where Zach attends uh, practices it. I've often been included with the elders when they've come in to pray. I think there could be a bit more uh, of that instruction on the front end uh, what are these trials about? But it's still being practiced in faith, uh, and we thank God for that. I started doing it in Houston, Texas, back in, I guess, the late 80s, and have practiced it ever since, and uh, teach the students here to do so as well. So thank you, Melvin. Uh, you're right, there's no power in the oil at all, and there's no healing power in the elders. It's interesting. Going back to our question about cessation, it doesn't say to call for the healer, does it? Don't call for the person as the gift of healing. No, call for the elders. And they don't heal, but they anoint with prayer, uh, oil and pray. Which is another important thing in talking about cessation. When we talk about cessation, we don't mean that God is not doing supernatural things, extraordinary things. We're just saying that God does those things um, no longer through people. Uh, they're not mediated now through people who have those gifts, but by God, either in no means or in the regular means. Thank you for the thoughtful question, Mel. When we were going through Mark together, 
in homiletics practicum two with Dr. Piper this spring, and now Melwin's graduated, and I'm still here for however many years I'll be here. <laughs> uh, we have time for one more question, and this is a double up from John Blevins again of Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and he writes, sadly, it is becoming clear there is a progressive push happening in some NAPARC denominations. I wonder what he's talking about. <laughs> if an elder notices these trends in their Presbyterian denomination, what strategy would you recommend for faithful men to turn the tide back to biblical and confessional fidelity? Uh, very good, uh, John. And I think there uh, are things that uh, we can be doing. Uh, the first is, is to be uh, educated. We need to be sure that our ruling elders uh know what's going on in the uh, in the General Assembly and in other presbyteries and by ministers in our denomination. So how many uh, people in the PCA know that a PCA teaching elder wrote an article in a major evangelical magazine and came out of the closet and said, I am a homosexual Christian? That should be shocking. But again, I imagine that some large portion of people in the church uh, don't even uh, know about that. So first, uh, information. Uh, and then particularly information with the elders in your own church and in the presbytery, as well as with the other ministers in the presbytery. Um, we've got some good groups now that are trying to do some things. The Gospel Reformation Network, in particular in the PCA, uh, they seem to be pushing back in terms of any kind of, of political involvement. As I've been thinking about this, I'm very much opposed to um, caucusing in terms of looking at issues and saying, here is how we as a group are going to vote. But I think it is very appropriate to have public meetings and say, here are the issues, and here is how we think that biblically we ought to vote. And we've not had those kind of meetings. I thought initially that Monday night meeting was going to have maybe happened one time at General Assembly. The evening of confessional concern. Yeah, but at one time, but we really need to have no, no private meetings, no secret meetings. That's what the progressives do. But here's a public meeting. Here are the 10 issues that we think are serious at the Assembly. Um, and here is what we think that we should be doing about these issues. And so I think that we're going to need to uh, become more uh, intentional as conservatives in my own denomination. And then whatever it takes, uh, John, we've got to get our conservative pastors and our ruling elders back to the General Assembly. Too many people have lost heart. Uh, it's expensive. Uh, it is in so many ways, by the time you muddle through everything, you get to about a, a day and a half of business. Um, and it's, it's a shame that the... Um, we had 1,100 and something people there, 300 ruling elders. A church will go liberal when it is run by the clergy. Now, providentially, anything of major importance has to go back to the presbyteries to be voted on, and then the ruling elder has a voice. But we need his voice at the other, other area as well. So we've got to get ruling elders involved um, as well. So um, pay attention to what these groups uh, are publishing and doing uh, at the Presbytery or at the General Assembly. Um, 
think through the issues, be sure that you've read the material ahead of time and you've talked to others as well. Make sure your elders know the material. Again, not telling them how to vote, but saying here are the important issues now and here's, here's what I think about it. And again, if you're going to be at General Assembly this year for the PCA, it might be uh, the ship has sailed for the OPC. You guys are already meeting. But if y'all are going to be at the PCA General Assembly, notice what I did there with you guys versus <laughs> y'all. If y'all are going to be at PCA General Assembly, please join us for our Thursday afternoon lunch. We're going to have a pastor's panel partnering with the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education. We'll have four veteran pastors up on stage for a moderated panel discussion. It should be a, a really edifying time. Um, during the week, and then uh, look into the different events being held by the Gospel Reformation Network. Uh, there is right now something in the works to have some sort of prayer meeting in the middle of the week as well for uh, confessionally-minded men and conservative men. Anyone would be welcome to join us, of course. And uh, there are other events uh, that would be of interest to our listeners, and feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions about that. But John, remember my motto. One church at a time, one day at a time. What happens at the General Assembly overall is of the least importance of anything that we do. Presbytery is much more important, but we don't change presbyteries until we change churches. So we start, I mean, some guys get so keen on the politics of the higher level that they're missing the mantra. They're a mantra, but it's for us more than a mantra, the normal means of grace church. We um, pray, and we preach, and we pastor. And when uh, churches become more reformed, presbyteries become more reformed. In the presbytery, reach out to the ruling elders, even from broader churches, um, so that you can influence them and help them begin to see the issue. But it's, it's at home where we prayerfully do the ministry that, that any revival or reformation ultimately will take place. That's right. That's right. There are those who are focused on the perception of a denomination, which is uh, determined by the national activity, but the reality of a denomination and its life is really determined by its presbyteries' activities and the local congregation's activities. So thank you, John, and thank you, Dr. Piper, for your time. Dr. Piper is going to be heading out uh, for a trip to visit with one of our graduates, Mike Cuneo, in Italy. He's a church planter in Viterbo, Italy. And Dr. Piper is serving on his session, so he'll be out there encouraging him, leading a pastor's conference, I believe, and doing some uh, potentially some elder training and preaching for church, Mike. Church conference, too. A church conference as well. And a pastor's conference. And a pastor's conference. So please uh, pray for not just Dr. Piper, but the other men across Europe who will be uh, coming to Italy for the, those events, and uh, pray that the kingdom would go forth and would expand and advance as uh, Mike labors in Viterbo, which is a very isolated call at this point, but we're hoping uh, less so in the future as God raises up men to help. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.